I call your attention this morning to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. I'm entitled the message very simply, The Essentials. A few weeks back, there was uh, something mentioned uh, by one of our brethren with regard to getting back to basics. And certainly we need to do that. And I am a firm believer in that. In the course of my pastoral ministry, as I've sought to take the church, churches that I've pastored wherever I was, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, there were times when we would stop in the midst of that program, wherever it was, and we go back a little bit to reintroduce ourselves to the basics, the fundamentals, those early cardinal doctrines that are absolutely essential. And the reason I did that and that we should do that is we're kind of getting to the place where we're losing uh, some of that priority. And the reason I say that is this. There's a whole bunch of congregations out there under various names, some of them in, including Baptist, that have lost their moorings. They've lost touch with the basics. And that's why it's important to go back once in a while and kind of rebuild on those essentials and those foundational principles. From Little League to the pros, all coaches emphasize this watchword, don't forget the fundamentals. They know that the key to winning is performing the fundamentals of the game. For those of us who were living at the time, during the 1960s, legendary football coach Vince Lombardi led his Green Bay Packers to a record three consecutive NFL championships by honing and polishing the fundamentals. He drilled and drilled his players in the rudiments of blocking, tackling, and running. In fact, his own personal biographer, a fellow by the name of Michael O'Brien, noted this, and I quote, Vince's strategy was not particularly creative. Seldom dazzling, his teams concentrated on vigorous, quick, synchronized execution of the fundamental elements of football. He did exactly what everybody else did, only he did it better." End quote. On one occasion, so the story goes, his team neglected the fundamentals and lost to an inferior team. The next practice Lombardi soberly addressed the sheepish athletes. Okay, we go back to the basics this morning. Gentlemen, this is a football. For those of us who were born and raised in Southern California, we remember the legendary basketball coach of UCLA, John Wooden, who, by the way, was likewise a born-again Christian. What he would do in their first practice every single year is he'd go into Poly Pavilion where they practiced and he'd ask the players to take off their shoes and socks. And of course they would look at each other rather puzzled, the freshman players in particular, and he says, okay, this is what you do. You get your 
socks put on and make sure you don't have any wrinkles in those socks because wrinkles produce blisters. And if you have to be sidelined because of blisters, you know that you didn't do the very first basic fundamental. Sometimes we too forget the fundamentals in the Christian life. And we need to get back to the basics as the athletes do. According to our text of Acts chapter 15, the first group of Christians, church members of a number of the churches there in that area, all met with the apostles there at what we refer to as the Jerusalem Council. They met to define the essentials of salvation, the most important fundamental of them all. And so would you stand with me as we read the text of Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. We're not going to read the whole uh, passage that I'm going to look at at this moment, but to just kind of give us an idea. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and women, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written according to the prophet Amos. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the, says the Lord who does all these things. Father, thank you for the reading of this part of the text and pray to your God that as we seek to delve into the scripture, may we not only be receiving uh, uh, proper interpretation on the basis of the illuminating power of the Spirit, but also, Lord, that we might be making proper application in a practical sense in order that we can go away from this service today not only having a greater knowledge of what the Scripture says, but a greater ability by your grace to apply those things so that our lives would be a greater reflection of that of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The central question of debate that arose between the apostles and the elders was, what should a Gentile do to be saved? Now, part of the problem existed when there were some uh, Jewish members of the Jerusalem church who had traveled up to Antioch of Syria, where the apostle Paul and others were laboring, and those uh, people who were sent who actually were not sent by Jerusalem Church, but just gave the impression that they were, were starting to teach things like this. While it is true that salvation is solely by the grace of God through faith, we need to understand that there needs to be an adherence to the law of Moses, circumcision as a, as a right, and a conformity to all of the principles of the Jewish law. They had not been sent by the apostles or anyone in the church in Jerusalem with that. And so they contradicted the teaching of Paul, Barnabas, and Silas, and others. 
And so they found that it was creating no small disturbance. And so the church at Antioch sent Paul and Silas in particular as messengers, if you will, to the church in Jerusalem to counsel with the apostles and the brethren uh, to get that all straightened out. And so uh, those certain Jewish Christians who were, by the way, former Pharisees, felt that the Gentiles must keep the law in order to be saved. They said, according to verse 5 in this passage of Scripture, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Peter objected. How could Gentiles be expected to obey the law even when the Jews hadn't been able to keep it? According to verse 10, and this is what that says in this passage. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke? Some of you might know about that uh, situation on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. And he then had an emphatic conclusion in verse 11 when he said, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. <laughs> Let me emphasize with respect to what took place long ago there uh, in the, the churches, that the same necessary thing should be uh, in the midst of 2019 uh, churches as well. Our basic fundamental doctrine is this. It's certainly not all of it, but it is the foundation, is that salvation is by grace through faith alone plus zero. Fundamentally, that salvation, it comes by a person's personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the essential ingredient in salvation is grace, not law. Paul and Barnabas affirmed Peter's statement with great delight, giving example upon example of God's grace in action through them. When it says in verse 12, then all the multiple multitude rather kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And when they finished speaking, all eyes turned to the various council members. As in a courtroom, both sides had rested their cases. Now it was time for an official decision. And so James who happened to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had uh, uh, the same mother. But, of course, Joseph was uh, Jesus' stepfather, but he was the actual natural biological father of James. And writer of the epistle bearing his name was also the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He rose and spoke for the council. As a respected spiritual leader with very high integrity, he communicated the decision logically, clearly, and compassionately. First, 
He gave an oral decision. He used four strands of thought. He wove a wise doctrinal pattern for the churches to follow. He said that God was doing the saving or the work in their midst, not man. The point had been clearly made by Peter, or as Simeon, as James called him by the Hebrew name, according to verse 14, the Jewish Christians, members of the church in Jerusalem, to be sure, thought that they had God figured out. They knew him as a God of law. But who was this new God of grace? And how could the God who loved the Jew have any room for the Gentile? You see, their prejudice that they had developed over a, a, a number of centuries was to the point that even their own personal salvation experiences didn't completely get rid of those prejudices. And hence the problem. But James was reminding them that they couldn't fashion God from their own preconceptions and force that image on others. Uh, I remember when uh, the women's liberation movement uh, started heavy into the late 60s, early 70s, that their current uh, uh, spokesperson, uh, uh, Gloria Steinem, uh, one time said it this way. It says, God is anyone or anything you want to make God. And she happened to be doing that on a talk show where uh, entertainer Pearl Bailey also was. And I'll never forget, Pearl Bailey looked across at her and said, Now, honey, you just haven't read your Bible lately, have you? <laughs> Which I appreciated. But here's the thing. God is not fashioned by our whims or our preconceptions. He's the God of the Bible. And as such, he consistently is the one who saves individuals according to what the Bible says, and that is by grace through faith alone. <coughs> and even then, James reminded them that they couldn't fashion God on their terms because God's ways are often incomprehensible. And then by his grace, the Bible says, according to the times in which we're talking, he was bringing Gentiles into his forever family without all the Jewish trappings. That, as James explained in his next point, had been God's plan all along. Referring to a prophecy in Amos, according to the text that we've read er earlier, James threaded a second strand into his presentation. The word of God is being fulfilled, not contradicted. Okay, there's this idea is that uh, God dealt with the Jews uh, uh, in their way in the Old Testament, and God turned that off, and now he's dealing with uh, Gentiles his other way. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not uh, in contradiction to each other. They are compatible because while we have in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ predicted and the prophecy surrounding his coming and his redemption, the New Testament is the fulfillment of those predictions. And so there is 
total compatibility between the Testaments. In verse 16, the term after these things refers to the time after the church age, which is like a parenthesis in God's plan for the Jews. Let's read it one more time. After this, I will return and we rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up. In the Old Testament, God selected the Jews to be his peculiar people, promising to bless them as a nation, and he truly has. And he wants to do it again. But when they rejected Christ, God temporarily rejected them while raising his New Testament assemblies, the churches. We're told in Romans chapter 11, and verse 25. Paul said, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That simply says there's going to be a time in the very near future where God is going to again deal with his Old Testament covenant people one more time for their potential redemption. At the appointed time, Christ will return, will restore the Jews to himself, finally fulfilling all his promises that were made toward them. And by quoting Amos' prophecy, James was showing the Jewish Christians, members of the Jerusalem church, that Gentile salvation was not contradictory to God's overall plan from the distant past, but was a part of it. The conclusion formulated the third strand of his argument. The basis of salvation is grace, not law. Let's again read verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. James declared that the Jewish believers should not burden the Gentile Christians by requiring that they keep the law. And by the way, the law was never given to the Gentiles anyway. God had already saved those Gentiles. To add their own requirements would be opposing God's grace and bringing great trouble to fellow born-again believers. As long as I have been a child of God, and long before I'm sure, is that those who were involved in religiosity, Christendom if you will, the vast majority of those have continually added to the formula. The formula being, of course, salvation by grace through faith alone. And adding works, adding ordinances, adding sacraments and so on has distorted the original plan and message of God to the point where many people out there who might be sincerely seeking God have become confused. And this is one of those areas that we need to return to basics. So the question is, 
completing his theological pattern for the churches, James added a cautionary fourth strand. A lifestyle of obedience and love must follow salvation, not uh, carnal license, verses 20 and 21. It says, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So was James qualifying everything he had said previously about grace? No, far from it. It was... He was just foreseeing an oil and water problem occurring as more and more Gentiles beginning, began mixing with Jews in the newly founded New Testament churches. Jewish Christians had been raised under a very strict moral and dietary code. Among the most heinous offenses were the four that James mentioned. Fornication, eating meat from animals sacrificed to idols, eating meat from strangled animals, and eating meat with blood in it, all in accord with passages found in the book of Leviticus. But for Gentile believers, there were no restraints like that. So conflict between the two groups was pretty much inevitable. Wishing to avoid needless and often unintentional offense James wanted to remind those Gentile Christians to love their Jewish brothers and sisters by voluntarily restricting their liberty in those kinds of practices. In our own day and time, those of us who I would refer to as veteran church members, we need to have a real heart for those brand new people coming to Christ and maybe uh, seeking to be uh, discipled in the, this church. Because they might be coming from a religious background where they need to be, shall we say, untaught, and then taught the way of the Lord more perfectly. But in the meantime, they may have some restrictions that have been personally invoked, maybe by previous encounters with relig religiosity. And so rather than say, hey, you know, you can do this, they may be able not at the moment. And so it's best that we understand that though we do not have restrictions on some of the things they're mentioning, is that maybe it's good for us to back away from our own individual rights for a while in order that they would not be hindered in the work of the Lord. James is basically saying, don't flaunt your freedom. Later, Paul echoed that same message to the churches of Galatia. For he said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, he said it this way, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Case in point, could it be that uh, we might be able to lead uh, someone to Christ who is Jewish? And let's say they are kosher in their dietary things. 
Now, would we indeed, as we invite them to our house for a meal, a fellowship meal, uh, are we going to have uh, a ham? I don't think so. Uh, you'd be wise not to do that. You want to hinder it? Hinder them? There it is. And so I think you understand. We might have the liberty to have as much of that ham as we want to. But understanding that as new believers and coming out from a culture and even a religious system that uh, considered that to be a, a bad thing, we need to uh, understand that uh, our liberty should be voluntarily stopped for the moment. God's grace has delivered us from legalism, but that doesn't give us license to anything we please. Limiting our freedom for the sake of others really shows maturity. The kind of maturity James wanted to instill in the quickly multiplying Gentile believers among the churches. The council completely agreed with James. And so they recorded their decision in the following letter, beginning in the last part of verse 23, <coughs> which says, The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, we didn't send them there, and we certainly didn't send them with those kinds of messages. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. Well, two points stand out from that brief correspondence. First, the council members recognized that restricting one's liberty was a burden. When they wrote, it seemed good to us to lay upon you no greater burden, by implication, they were laying on them some amount of burden. Because limitations are burdensome. But love motivates us to bear them to protect weaker believers from stumbling. Secondly, those restrictions were essential. The council members called the limitations essentials because the churches couldn't win without them. Harmony in the body of Christ, which is the New Testament local church, often depends on our willingness to forego a personal privilege. And that was not capitulating to legalism. It was a sign of love and maturity. With letter in hand, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas traveled back to Antioch, the church that was there. 
Notice the last part of verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Okay. Going on to verse 35. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. All right. The response to the council's decision was tremendous and almost a, a sigh of relief for many. Okay. The people rejoiced. They were encouraged and they were strengthened. Okay. They felt a sense of peace and continued preaching the word of God with one voice. Jerusalem Council's emphasis on grace and love averted a serious schism. And so at that moment, there was harmony. But later down the road, the apostles would battle additional opponents to grace. One was legalism. Uh, the teaching that salvation was earned by following a list of do's and don'ts. The opposite extreme was the philosophy of total freedom from any law. Okay? Then there was another twist. The fallacy propagated in the Galatian churches that salvation was indeed by grace, but spirituality was measured by the law. We face those same opponents are in our own day. If we're to win, we must focus on the fundamentals, God's grace, salvation through faith alone, freedom in Christ, and making loving sacrifices for one another. We tend to complicate these simple essentials. And what I'm finding in 2019 and, and so on is this dimension where the fundamentals, many say, are correct. But they, they don't want any part of it. They, they want to move on to some things. And so what invariably will happen is many of those in the faith will uh, get, have some more uh, confusion, if you will, because the fundamentals are not drawn back to. Okay. Each extreme has its negative consequences. Legalism results in an emphasis on works, and the impact is guilt. License, therefore, results in an emphasis on self, and the impact is offensive. One says, if you don't achieve, you're a failure. The other says, do it your way, and don't worry about anyone else's feelings. In the very middle between those two extremes is grace. Grace results in an emphasis on Christ, and the impact is love. It says, love others as Christ has loved you. This is the essence of our walk in the Christian life. And like so many coaches all over the world, our heavenly coach 
will keep on reminding us, don't forget the fundamentals. The question is and remains, will we listen? If you, you receive a paycheck at the end of the week, at the end of two weeks, or the end of the month, did you know that's not grace? You give your son an allowance for doing his chores. That's not grace either. You return a favor by babysitting your neighbor's kids. No grace here. So question is, where can we find grace? Grace, by biblical definition and example, is the prodigal son returning home to a party in his honor or Jesus spying a wicked little man in a sycamore tree and saying, Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house, according to the text of Luke chapter 19. Grace is Jesus saying to the penitent thief who languished on the cross next to his, today you shall be with me in paradise. Another essential of grace-filled Christianity we discovered in the message today is love. Love that is willing to limit one's own freedom to protect a weaker fellow Christian. How is one to know if something is a genuine hindrance or, the whether, or whether the person who objects to your doing something is simply trying to impose, impose his standard on you. In other words, uh, what I refer to as the professional weaker brother. And that simply says, here's a Joe Church member, and he sees somebody in the congregation go to a movie, even though the movie is rated G. And they say, you know what? I don't have the liberty to go to a movie, and neither do you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who are weak in their faith or those who are newborn Christians and just recently saved. That's what we're talking about. Our principle of love, if we're not careful, can quickly degenerate into checklist Christianity. We don't want to offend this group of people, so we keep their list of right and wrong. Neither do we want to offend that group, so we follow their standard as well. Soon these lists constrict us so much like strips of cloth on a mummy. We can feel entombed, restrained, and even afraid of any kind of pleasure. Here are a couple of guidelines to help us unwrap the dilemma and know when and where not to limit our freedom. Is the objecting person really trying to grow and make progress in his or her own spiritual life, or are they simply sitting on the sidelines of the race course, sniping at the runners? How many are apparently affected by what I may feel free to do? And to bring this kind of uh, into the realm of the personal, suppose your friend is battling overeating. I know I just stepped on a few toes when I said that. And I, I, that's why I'm wearing my big shoes today, personally. You would probably restrict your freedom to eat donuts in front of this person in order to protect your friend from stumbling. In addition, let's say you decide to minister to a group of people like your friend. Because of the number of people affected, you may completely alter your diet in order to be an example for them. You do this 
because you love them. However, suppose a group of your friends is critical of anyone who eats sugar. Donut eaters offend them, not because they're in danger of stumbling, but because in pride they enjoy announcing their way as better than yours. Such people are merely sniping at the runners. And so, brothers and sisters, the balance in this thing is according to the essentials, the very fundamentals of the faith. At our very starting point, salvation is by grace through faith alone without works, without ordinances, without sacraments, and so on. That is not to say that works don't have a part in that which follows. Certainly that's true. One of our favorite passages of Scripture to cite is Romans chapter eight, uh, 2, rather, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 continues in that same context, and we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to, with respect or with reference to good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. But understand, walking in works and walking in Christ is not in order to be saved. They are put there because we are. It's then once we have received that wonderful gift of the grace of God in salvation, we then are given the admonition that we should walk in the Lord for the benefit of others who yet do not know him. The essentials. And let me just say this as a concluding thought. I know of some that all they do is preach the essentials. And or all they'll do is preach a message that's evangelistic. Well, the one thing we need to consider is the vast majority of those who hear our messages are already saved. Point being, you can't evangelize the evangelized. And so there's got to be something beyond that. But the point of, of the message, of course, overall was there comes a time when we need to return to the basics just to build upon that foundation in order that we then can indeed proceed to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity you've granted us to uh, dig into a portion of your word, and we pray, dear God, that it has challenged us, that has caused us to realize that we indeed need to, uh, every once in a while, return to the fundamentals. And help us, Lord, to build upon those fundamentals that we might add to our faith as believers in order that we can draw closer to Christ and live out a life that images His. We pray, dear God, that in the course of the message, that your spirit has moved in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls with regard to their particular need for salvation. If there are any in this auditorium today, dear God, that have never personally responded to the gospel and personally received Jesus Christ as their own, may this be the day that they finally surrender and give in 
and allow your spirit to so move in their heart where they ask forgiveness of their sins and receive Jesus Christ in faith. For these things we ask in his marvelous name. Amen.